0: Built to sell radio with your host, John Warlow. You know when you meet someone for the first time and you instantly like them? It's the way I felt about Bobby Martin. We were two young entrepreneurs. We met at a trade show, and we were both putting up our boots like good entrepreneurs. We were doing it ourselves, up by the bootstraps. We didn't have employees to put them up, and we both kind of commiserated and laughed at the fact that we here we were exhibiting and uh, trying to make our businesses uh, uh, to become successful. Ultimately, we saw each other throughout the years as, as we both continued to grow our business somewhat in parallel, somewhat in the same industry, not competitive, but similar And I became to know and really admire Bobby over the years and ultimately Bobby sold his business for $26 million to a Fortune 500 company Dunn in Bradstreet was the acquirer. And what you're about to hear is a cautionary tale. On the outside, Bobby had an amazing exit. Sold his business for four times top line revenue. Uh, You know, an amazing exit on paper. However, the exit itself and the process of selling his business left Bobby feeling a little bit empty. Uh, He goes so far as to say that he actually and sometimes regrets selling his company. I'll let Bobby tell you the rest of the story. Bobby, great to talk to you.
1: You too, John. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, no, no, my pleasure. You know, I was, I was thinking it's been a couple of years since we've met, but we've kind of gone through this this entrepreneurial life cycle together. I remember when we first met, it was at a trade show, and you guys were setting up your booth, and we were setting up our booth, and and we got to know one another.
1: Exactly, and I actually attended uh, many of your trade shows uh, back in the day in the 2000s, which were uh, really entertaining. I met a lot of great people at those as well.
0: Well, so I'm a huge fan of your former business, First Research. But for listeners who don't know about it, can you just describe a little bit about what you guys did at First Research?
1: Sure. We provide industry profiles, sort of cheat sheets on industries for sales sales and marketing professionals. Yeah. So, uh, I was a banker, and I had the idea that the more I knew about a, a business or industry, the, the better my sales calls tended to go. So that kind of led to me creating cheat sheets, and those cheat sheets sort of evolved into a company.
0: That's great, and and just give us a sense of the trajectory. I mean, when did you start, and when did you sell, how much revenue did you have when you sold, that kind of stuff?
1: Sure, I started tinkering around with First Research in 1997 and 98. I started it officially in 1999, you know, by quitting my day job. Uh, that year, 99, we, we worked for nine months, I think I sold five thousand dollars worth of subscriptions. Uh, the next year, two thousand was um, another slow year where we were just inching along, and then we started getting more and more interest. You know, these businesses take a long time to catch on, particularly new ideas. But um, by two thousand and six, we did six point five million in revenue. So uh, we were adding on a couple million dollars in new revenue a year.
0: That's fantastic. And your, your customers were these large, typically large financial institutions who bought this research so that their salespeople could, uh, could be better informed going into a call?
1: Uh, that's correct. I mean, we ended up also selling to lots of small organizations as well. So examples of that would be uh, CPAs, consultants, really anybody who needed a, a nice, clear summary on an industry. Uh, from the perspective, a business perspective that's easy to read. So we had thousands of CPAs as customers and uh, consultants, and all kinds of people like that, and also large organizations as well.
0: And just give us a sense, when you know when you did sell the business, of the 6.5 million, what proportion roughly was those very large enterprise customers versus the kind of smaller CPA firms?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. I think uh, revenue-wise, it was primarily... Uh, from the large organizations but then number of customers of course we had thousands of small customers that paid us a whole lot less. So it was kind of split up like that It was a subs- it was a subscription business and still is so that people paid annual subscriptions to have access to first research and it was kind of information as a service instead of SaaS. you know software as a service it was kind of like information as a service. So that's kind of how it worked.
0: Got it. So it was really one of these uh, subscription businesses. That's, that's super helpful. You, you mentioned the, the we. Um, who's the we in first research? Did you have a partner? What was the, the kind of capital structure like?
1: Yeah, sure. I did. So I had the ori- uh, original idea and I teamed up with a man up in Boston named Ingo Windsor, a really smart guy who had, his, had a small business he was running uh, successfully, but it didn't take up that much of his time. So I... I took on 65% of the company, and Ingo owned 35% of the company. Uh, and then about a year later, we added Will Brawley, who is a super salesperson, and he acquired 10% of the company. And uh, that's that's how we were organized. And we never did raise venture capital or anything like that. We just uh, sort of bootstrapped it and stuck with that model.
0: Did you have a lot of debt uh, in the business, or was it cash flowing well? What was the what was the debt structure like?
1: Yeah, we didn't have any debt in the business. We, uh, now, when I first start started in 1999, I loaned the business uh, $30,000 or $40,000, but that was paid back within a couple of years, and so the business was debt-free after that. And so why
0: sell? I mean, this thing was going like a hockey stick, and we'll get to the hockey stick's principles in a minute, but I mean, it was growing fast. Um, I know you, we've met, you're, you're a young guy. Why
1: um, Why sell? It's, it's a great question. It's a really loaded question. I'm not going to sit here and talk for three hours about it, but I could. Um, the uh, long or the short of, of it is uh, circumstances was led us to sell the company in March of 2007. Uh, a few of those circumstances were that I was not looking to sell First Research. I was uh, enjoying it very much, but uh, the, our acquire Dun in Bradstreet slash Hoovers, Dun & Bradstreet is a, a large and uh, publicly traded information company, uh, and owned another company called Hoovers, which is a sales and marketing tool that they had acquired a few years ago. They approached us in 2000, late 2006, really I should say mid-2006, and actually lear- they learned about us, I believe, of course this is my opinion at a trade show, one of their sales professionals who's really good from Hoover's walked up to the booth and asked me a lot of questions about first research and she said we should buy you and it wasn't that long after that folks from uh, Hoover's and Dunn and Bradstreet started contacting us so I was open-minded to anything you know I uh, I had no aspirations to sell the business uh, but I was open minded as well. That that's kind of what led to it. The other thing I'll say is why did I sell the business, or we sell the business, I should say, is that first research was in a transition point. So, you know, for the first three or four or five years, Ingo Windsor, Will Brawley, and a couple of the other people who were early founders of the business ran the company. And, you know, we got to five six million dollars I wanted to keep growing really fast and I had hired a management team in other words people smarter than me in particular areas such as marketing as an example or accounting what are the area of expertise and now the management team was running the company and I was trying to keep those high growth rates and it was causing a bit of strain uh, as you would expect these growing pains and so the business was becoming more stressful to run you know as the president slash CEO of the business and we were adding a whole lot of new salespeople and I'd always run the sales organization. And so we were going through this difficult transition where I was trying to let go of sales and was having a difficult time with it. So that made it a little bit easier. I also think we got a, a for us, what was a good price? So we liked the price. I think that price was a win-win for both organizations. And so everybody's objectives were met. So that's kind of a long answer. So be,
0: before we get to the price, it, it sounds like then, you know, it was a push-pull a little bit in, in the case of certainly you were pulled into or drawn into a discussion with a Fortune 500 company who wanted to buy you. But there was a little part of you that was also um, m- maybe feeling um, like you wanted to get out. The stress of, of going through this growing brain, formalizing the management team uh, was also frustrating personally.
1: Sure. And I don't think that frustration led to me thinking, man, I'd like to quit. Uh, That's just uh, not really in my personality, but I do think it made it a little less fun. You know, once a business, it was really fun to grow from, you know, zero to a million was totally exhilarating. One to five million, growing it from one to five million was likewise uh, really exhilarating and Uh, Challenging as well, but then once we got over five million, it was becoming clear to me that five to twenty million was going to be a little less fun. It's more one manages more complexity, and I think that's the bottom line.
0: And so, I mean, can you give us an example to kind of paint the picture of of a, and it doesn't have to be a big, big example, but maybe a story that comes to mind when you think about uh, some of those growing pains that that. It just wasn't as fun anymore. Maybe it, maybe a, a conflict you had in the sales organization where when you were a one million dollar company it would have been a five minute you know conversation, but at a six million dollar company, it became a frustration.
1: Oh yeah, that, that's a great question. Yeah, I think um, an example would be that as I told, as I'd mentioned, I'd run the sales organization myself, and we we had used a particular sales model which was primarily based upon. Uh, Cold calling and relationship building. It was a bit old school, but it worked very well at our price point. And once we got up to a certain point, we decided to employ a more modern sales uh, model that involved lead generation and vetting those leads and then pushing them through kind of a process, a funnel, if you will, which is a modern sales uh, method today. And so we wanted to bring in someone who would be good at that. And so when we went through that culturally it was very difficult for the business because it was a different culture. And so when I hired that particular person I did it a bit reluctantly uh, even though he's a great at what he does and he's very successful today. It was very stressful for me being in the middle as the organization sort of transformed itself from what it had been which is a relationship building sales model into a more software type sales model and it was stressful trying to make that transition have people report to someone new etc and when you say
0: stressful let's get underneath that a little bit so i mean did it feel do you think he's a better salesman than you
1: no i think he's a different salesman than me i think he uh He's a very smart individual, and I think he, he, he had the ability to run that particular sales model really well. But I think there wasn't enough mutual respect both ways, So mutual respect, meaning I didn't appreciate his sales model as much as I should have. And he probably didn't, to my mind, appreciate my old school relationship building sales model as much. And so that's what, that's what caused it to be you know, somewhat difficult to transition
0: yeah 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 the i guess one of these the the lessons learned here is this is as founders you know we grow up doing um doing everything right and and it's a lot of learn by doing but we those scars and that that protective shield becomes part of who we are right and we're i mean not putting words in your mouth but we become uh certainly pretty proud of what we've accomplished and when quote-unquote professional management comes in, there's a little bit, at least from my perspective, that that I need to be acknowledged for what I've built uh, while I appreciate what you're bringing to the table. There needs to be a bit of an acknowledgement on
1: the other side as well. Uh, you nailed it, man. I, that is a great way to put it. And You know, it's like everybody has to transition from a, uh, the business being more of a uh, creation process into more of a corporate process. So, you know, from zero to five million, I I could become an, I could be an entrepreneur. And once I got over five million, I had to become more of an executive. I don't know if I really grew up and wanted to be an executive. I want to be an entrepreneur, you know.
0: (laughs) So, So let's get, let's get into the sale itself. So, so along comes Dun & Bradstreet, this huge, massive Fortune 500 company, and tell us a little bit about that process. I mean, that you did not solicit them but they came to you. But just walk us through what happened next.
1: Yeah, they contacted us about uh, partnership opportunities and you know things we could do together because we were so synergistic. Because Hoover's provides information about executives, um, it provides information about businesses, yeah, and it didn't have a lot of detail necessarily at the time about industries.
0: When you they, the, when they used that partnership word, did you know that was code for we want to buy you?
1: I, I did think that was. I was thinking that's what they had in mind. I didn't know that for sure, but then I met with some of their executives from Hoovers and I think they, they did say, you know, it might be easier just to combine the companies. Now, D&B also had a, a, an internet strategy going on with their, you know, announcement to their shareholders that they were growing their Hoover's business or growing their internet solutions business, I think is how it was called at the time. So I knew they were acquiring companies to grow their internet solutions business. And uh, that was primarily based around uh, Hoovers and they had done very well with Hoovers uh, from what I had read and understood. Uh, and the, the business was based in Austin, Texas. And they had done quite well with that and t- taking good care of Hoovers, I think. And so, how would you describe
0: the tenor of those first meetings?
1: Just... Uh, we And those first meetings were in the very beginning there were conference calls and we would discuss kind of what we can do, what we could do together. Like, you know, what are some ideas that we could serve our customers, our, our customers better? So what types of customers do we have? What cu- customers do they have? And how could we serve them better by doing things you know, together, like combining our products, for example, or combining our sales efforts or our marketing efforts.
0: And did you Mm -hmm. know during these conference calls that this was all just a facade, that this was a dance that you knew was leading to an acquisition offer? Or were you genuinely going through those meetings? Like maybe this isn't going to turn out to an acquisition. Maybe this is just going to be a partnership.
1: Yeah. So that my instincts were that they probably wanted to do an acquisition, but I didn't know. And quite frankly, i I was really pushing hard for a partnership. I really love that concept of doing a partnership with those companies. And so, uh, but I didn't know for sure. You know I mean? I did know for sure after I met in person with some of the executives when they said, it might be easier to combine the companies type of thing.
0: And so take us from that point. So you met physically. Did you go to Austin or did they come to you? Oh,
1: uh, They came to us.
0: So they're on your premises Um take us through that discussion did so the 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 other side raised the issue of maybe we should combine the companies and then what did you say
1: um I think I if I recall I think I said that I don't really want to sell the business as as what I said and and I talked about why I didn't want to sell the business and you know that it was uh, that I thought we could accomplish the same things financially by being separate organizations. But then I also prefaced it probably with everything's for sale type of thing. That That's probably, I, think, I believe that's what I uh, we, we talked about in general. That sounds, you know, so I, a, yeah. So
0: a classic line like, I mean, you know, I don't want to sell. I think we should create a great partnership together, but I mean, everything's for sale at, at the right price. Yeah,
1: Would you have right. used
0: something like that with a smile on your face?
1: That's that's well yeah without the smile on my face. I oh really? I don't think I had a Roger grin or anything like that. I think I just said, you know, everything's for sale and you know that was primarily those weren't in discussions with a lot of people. That was more of the leadership from Hoovers.
0: But I'm interested though Bobby because we've met and I find you to be oozing with southern charm. I mean, you're a, you're a, you're like a super nice guy to meet. You've always got a smile on your face. Uh, you know, you seem like a super genuine person to meet face to face. Did that, did that, uh, Southern sort of hospitality follow through in those meetings? I mean, were you very kind of genteel and smiley and happy or was it, did you have a really game face on in those early meetings when you were pretty serious?
1: Oh, no, I was, uh, I was definitely, uh, uh more affable and, outgoing and positive and okay. excited and interested but i certainly wasn't um playful about the merger type discussions you know playful and like goofing around necessarily i was more eh, you know i don't know you know i was being honest that's what i was being i was trying to be as honest as i could be that's got it I mean.
0: so take us up to the next uh, round of seriousness so you say eh, maybe but you know everything's for sale um, did they? What, what was the next step? Did they come to you with an offer? What, what, just take us through that.
1: Yeah, they uh, they they keep. Uh, I think most acquirers, uh, as they were, they would uh, keep things uh, very uh, top level and non-committal, which is exactly a good way to do business. And so they said, "We think your company might be worth this range." And then I would say, "Well, that you know, we're apart because I'm not going to do that." And then they were smart, you know. They uh, they weren't never they were never desperate. They waited a couple of months. You know what I mean? They didn't beg or anything like that, or come back a week later, a day later. They sat on it for a long time, which was absolutely fine. I was more interested in the partnerships anyway.
0: So they ultimately acquired the business, as I understand it, for for twenty two million dollars, and then another four in in future incentives. Is that right? That's correct. So. Tell me in those early conversations, if they ended up at 22, like where were they at and where were you at? And, and obviously, you guys met somewhere in the middle.
1: Um, yeah, you know what? I'm not sure I could talk about the actual amounts just because of the confidentiality in it. But I think, you know, basically, you can imagine it was a $26.5 million. So they, you know, we were probably 30, 40% apart type of thing, if I don't recall. And then you kind of meet sort of in the middle, but, you know, that kind of thing. So it was, it was like that. It was real broad at first. And then, you know, eventually it lead to term sheets and that type of thing.
0: And people listening to this might be saying, holy crap, six and a half million dollars in revenue. And he did a deal for $26 million. That's like more than four times revenue. It must have been an astronomical multiple on your EBITDA.
1: Yeah. So yeah, that's, um, yeah, we did fine. We were, we had a good business in terms of um, how we managed it uh, with profits and that kind of thing. So it was, uh, it was a good business. And I think the deal was a good deal for everybody. You know what I mean? Like, I think that uh, first research had a, a good growth rates. And so that would justify the price. And I think they've done very well with it. I don't know that because you know, that's. I haven't worked there uh, very much since the acquisition. You know, I stayed on for a little while after the acquisition, but I think they've done very well with it because they understood the business and understood how they could continue to grow it, and have been done very well with it.
0: What was the What was the stickiest part of the negotiation
1: itself? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it. The stickiest part. Well, first of all, I think the process itself went very smoothly. I think both parties were motivated, and there wasn't a lot of complexity because we didn't have – because I controlled the shares of First Research. So So you
0: didn't have two class structures uh, between your other partners. It was all the same class of shares. You had the majority, so therefore – is that right?
1: Uh, Correct. And then everybody – and particularly Ingo. Ingo was my main person that I wanted to make sure he was happy. If he wasn't going to be happy, I wouldn't have done it. But I think it made sense for him. He's a little bit older than me, and so it made sense for him more so than myself. I'm 46 years old. At the time, I, was, I guess I was 38, maybe, something like that. And Ingo's um, a bit older than me, 10 or 15 years older than me, so it made more sense for him. But I didn't have to run around and uh, herd cats with the merger very much. Really, it was quite simple. And uh, but there was complexity with it, of course, around, you know, we have uh, not stock options plans, but plans very closely aligned to stock option plans at First Research. So we had to work through that. And um, but it was an amicable process, I would say. It wasn't that once we agreed upon the price, I don't think it ever got, you know, to uh, difficult to work through.
0: So you agreed on a price in a letter of intent, essentially that that was contingent on sixty days of due diligence.
1: I don't remember the length of time, but the due diligence. But that was, the, yeah, that was the idea. Of course, it's okay. been like a while, but yeah, absolutely. And they did do their due diligence process.
0: And and were there material changes to the to the price between the the letter of intent and the the ultimate close date?
1: Uh, not very much, if I don't recall. Not very much.
0: No. And then during the due diligence, I mean, for folks who have not gone through this, I mean, uh, I've heard it described as the entrepreneur's proctology exam, it being, you know, the, the most horrific 60 days of your life. So what, what was it like for you and, and what, what advice could you give other entrepreneurs about to go through due diligence?
1: Well, OK, so that's a great question. So it, it was very detailed. Um, they had to go through everything. But see, I have a banking background. So I was a banker and I used to lend money to businesses. So I totally get it. And so I had no problem with that because if I put myself in their shoes, if I was going to acquire a company and pay lots of money for it, I would want to understand as many details as possible. And so I had absolutely no problem with them asking for all kinds of things. And I provided it with, you know, no problem. If I don't recall, that's, that's how I remembered it.
0: So So give me an example of the minutia, the level of detail it would go to to try to understand your business so to, just to illustrate for other entrepreneurs listing sort of how much detail they might ask for in the due diligence process
1: oh so um, I think they need a lot of details about processes you know how, well, how we do things need, give me an example uh, well how our pre- how we serve our customers for example, like the steps by which we serve our customers or that type of thing or Maybe a list of our customers and how much, uh, you know, each is paid and that kind of thing, if I don't recall. It's, it's hard of me to remember exactly. But there were certain, I do remember lawyers, it was mostly between the lawyers and the lawyers being very involved with the information. Of course, if there was anything confidential, that we, then we couldn't provide it to them or vice versa. And so it was, it was that kind of thing. But it was, you know, they basically wanted to learn everything about the business before they bought us. And is that, were you worried that
0: that that might come back to haunt you at all? I mean, because they were in the same business, uh, you know, roughly, and the deal, the the letter of intent, I'm assuming, had an out clause for them. There wasn't a breakup fee. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. So you were sharing all this detail with them. They could have then turned around and said, deal's off. We're going to take that information, Bobby, and and use it against you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I was concerned about that. Um, Not real concerned. It didn't keep me up at night. But it, um, it's, I, I saw that as a reality of the situation and that any company who's buying another company has to go through that process. So you have to get comfortable with those facts is that if the deal doesn't go through for any reason, that you've now given this company as a potential competitor all your information. I also think there were non-disclosure agreements. And I think that the people that were going through a lot of that due diligence wouldn't necessarily apply it directly because they're an ethical company. You know, they really are a very ethical company. And I saw that through and through when I worked there. So I, uh, yes, is a short answer, but I just, and and, and any other thing to know about me, I think as for your listeners is that I am a bit naive and I think I was a bit naive through the process. And that theme Uh, there's a book by Bo Burlingham somebody you know well I think called Finish Big it was the the best book that I know of that anybody who owns a successful business that could be acquired should read and if I had read Finish Big before that I would have been quite as naive as I am
0: it's a great book by the way and if you haven't picked it up go pick it up it's you know it's a a definitely great read we've had Bo on the show by the way and uh, and he was uh, fantastic so for sure, get that book uh, finished big by Bo Burlingham. So to go back, Bobby, um, through the process, you know, if you had to do it all over again, and I'm thinking specifically about the negotiation for a moment, um, knowing what you know now, what
1: would you do differently? Well, first of all, I read that book because I didn't. I, the things I miscalculate, I didn't miscalculate the process itself. Because, you know, having that banking background and have an appreciation for um, just how business transactions work in general, but I think my, most of my being naive and my naivety was based around the consequences emotionally of selling one's business. So if I knew what I knew now, I would have not taken the process of selling my business so lightly because that business first research had defined my professional career and you know somebody's career is really important to who they are as a person and it was my dream come true i was stuck in a banking job that i didn't really like i didn't like being a number in fact i despised it and it felt really hopeless to me and the fact that i could start a business and be part of something really cool that sort of identifies more with me as a person and when I released it, it was like a divorce. I mean, it was like I had lost my – by, by, my wife had left me, but she left me a buck, some some cash. But what I really wanted was my wife because, you know, what I already had was really cool. And I'd already accumulated a lot of money. So it's interesting because people ask me a lot, do you regret selling your business? And I've said for many years – yeah, I think I do regret it. I don't regret it when I'm trying at night because I've done all kinds of neat things since then, and life is just fun to live. So there's all kinds of things, but I probably wouldn't have done it again. But now I look back on it differently, and the reason I do is because so many cool businesses have started from employees and partners at First Research who have started phenomenal businesses. Some of many of which I'm involved with as a partner, and so now it's now I have five businesses that I'm really involved in that I love very dearly. So it's worked out in the end, everything goes full circle type of things. Does that make sense?
0: It does. So I mean, walk us through that period emotionally for you after the sale of your business, um, you know, from the, the check clearing to what were some of the feelings? Can you describe that for folks so that they, if, if they're gonna go through this process, they can learn from maybe your journey?
1: Yeah, sure. It was very difficult for me um, emotionally and physically, and for many, many reasons. One is the the, the sense of loss. that it, The loss became clear to me because I was no longer in charge of first research, and I had to adapt to the way that Hoover's and D&B were doing business, and I think they were smart, and they had great business methods, but they weren't mine, and so that was very difficult to absorb. Uh, I ended up, with all sorts of psychological problems uh, after the merger. Uh, Not psychological, it was affecting others uh, too much. It was mostly internal. And I was visiting the psychologists, trying to deal with it. Um, I wasn't sleeping much at all. I ended up with a lot of chest pain uh, that I thought I was having you know, heart problems. But uh, so I had to go through and do a bunch of tests to make sure But I wasn't having heart problems. I was having stress problems, as it turns out. And that's what was causing the pain. Uh, You know, kind of what I look for that is don't take – if you're considering selling your business, do not take that lightly. And do not think that that's the goal, like the goal is to sell. And it never was my goal, but there was a lot of buzz about how cool it is to sell your business. But it's really not that cool. (laughs) So for me, it's not cool. For other people, it could be.
0: So how did you go beyond – I mean you you met with a psychologist who helped you through this. Um, did did they identify what the issue was? Was it this this sense of loss, this sense of uh, lacking purpose that that Bo writes so well about?
1: I, I think it absolutely was. Uh, I think that, that I didn't realize it, but a lot of my sense as a person was tied up with first research and not in a bad way. Some people say, Oh, that this, this person doesn't care about anything, but their business. That's not how I was. It wasn't that it was that it was a big part of who I was. It wasn't only a part of, of what I was, but it was a huge part of what I was. And so when I had that, I had a huge sense of loss and that was very difficult.
0: And, and, and how did this affect your relationship? I know if, you know, you're married with kids. How did it all, you know, how did, how did it affect those relationships?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. I think it did affect our relationship. We also had small children. So at the time we were having very young children, you know, two year olds. And I think that I was dealing with it and dealing with it through, um, being alone a lot and being kind of down, and that spills over to your family and your close relationships. So my wife, I think uh, she she was great through the process, and there was nothing collapsing about it necessarily. But it was a very difficult for our time for our marriage as, as well as I was dealing with that, and my wife was you know great throughout it she was trying to raise small children she was trying to you know what i mean like it's not that easy so it was a tough time man. that's what I, that's part of the reason i say i wouldn't have sold my business is of just how much it carries over to your personal relationships i did i grew my hair out really long after i'd left the business my hair grew really long and everything like that <laughs> so it was it was tough <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> i would have loved to have seen that do you have any pictures we can post of you with long hair yeah, I've,
1: I've got one or two around. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Show
0: notes. The, go to the show notes and see Bobby with long hair. Um, fun side. I mean, notwithstanding the, the emotional challenges and some of the physical challenges you described, was there was there anything I, I asked this of everyone I talked to? By the way, was there anything you went out and bought as a sort of trophy for yourself to you know of having sold this business? Anything fun that you can share with our our listeners?
1: Yeah, that, I love that question because it, it deals with the you know, like the rewards financially of owning your own business or selling your own business. And uh, I did end up buying a really cool mountain place that we just love and we use. It's like a cabin type place in the mountains in North Carolina. And and boy, I do think a lot about the fact that I connect that mountain place with the sale of my business and the more i love that place and the more we use it and become bond as a family the bigger smile it puts on my face now granted it was just a portion a small portion of what but of what uh the sale outcome was but i didn't end up going out and i didn't change my lifestyle they, i bought that place other than that nothing changed like financially other than the independence now i do have the independence to pick any type of career. I could totally retire if I want to. Of course, who wants to do that? The same type of people who start businesses aren't the type of people who are gonna, you know, totally quit. So it gives you career flexibility, but the whole financial thing's completely overrated to my mind. Having money, you know what? Having money gives you complexity, and that's the truth, man. You get money, you buy. You make investments, and those investments create complexity. Like you buy a commercial building, for example. Now you have to manage the commercial building Like to diversify your portfolio. It's like it's overrated, and I don't really like it that much. I mean, I, if I was poor, that's totally different, you know, totally different thing. But quite frankly, if you're upper middle class, just roll with that because, I mean, Warren Buffett said it really well when he says, I don't buy stuff because – if I bought a boat, a yacht, then I'd have to manage the person who manages the boat. And then he, he carried on about that for a while. I and mean, he's spot on right there. man. When you buy stuff, you have to manage it. And that's no fun. So that's just a word for me about that.
0: A word of wisdom. I want to ask you one more question about first research that, uh, that I think is important to the overall story. And that is, you know, how did you tell your employees and what was that experience like?
1: Well, that was really tricky because we had to keep it confi- keep the merger confidential, uh, as, especially since they're a uh, publicly traded company. But there were so many meetings going on, and I was completely distracted, as I had to be, that people knew something was going on. And I'd always run the company very open, like I would tell everybody everything because it's just the culture. And so I couldn't and didn't, and that made it very awkward. Everybody understood completely why I kept that confidential. But the announcement came, they announced it, I I believe if I don't recall, they have to announce it to the shareholders first. So, you know, within five minutes after they announced it to their shareholders, not that it was a big deal to their shareholders, small potatoes for them, but that's just how it has to be. With publicly traded companies, then we immediately announced it to ours. That's how it kind of went, I believe.
0: And how how was that announcement? I and mean, was it a, was it an email? Was it a all hands meeting, face to face? You up on stage? What what did that look like?
1: It was an all hands meeting, face to face, and they they came as well. Some of their executives came and uh, answered all the questions. They did a great job, and, and they also have great benefits. It, at D&B, and so they were pleased with benefits packages and all this. I mean, it was good, you know, it was a good thing for them.
0: What was the reaction among the staff? Uh,
1: You know, I think it would be different with each individual. Each individual was impacted differently or in their minds thought about it differently, I think. So their reaction was, you know, congratulatory. They were amicable. A couple of them were a little bit disturbed by it, but we just worked through those issues one on one. It was fine. And so, did they benefit
0: financially from the sale because they had stock options in the former First Research, right?
1: Yes, correct. They did, and um, they did.
0: So, Don Bradstreet was able to, to sort of help them participate in some on some level, or or you guys were.
1: We we did, yeah. That was our plan. So that kind of that happened at the merger time. You know what I mean? Like with a transfer of money from. The lawyers and then the lawyers paid off people who were owed, which is primarily through the stock uh, equivalent of stock options type things. You know, that's how they did it. The lawyers t- took care of everything.
0: And were those, I mean, for your employees, uh, not uh, Ingo and Will, but for for your other employees, were those life changing amounts of money? Did they, you know, thank you? Did, or was was there a sense of like how, how did they react to the the financial part of 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 the sale for them personally?
1: Yeah, I think um, that's a good question. I think uh, for five or six people, it was a lot, I'm guessing, a life-changing amount. Uh, well, life-changing might be a bit of a stretch, but you know, people ended up with seven figures type of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, I think they were appreciative for sure. And it also gave their own careers flexibility. And that's the thing that I'm really happy about is that some of them, you know, some of the smartest people they went and started their own businesses. I guess they figured if Bobby can do it, I know I can. <laughs> and they were right. You know, they've done really well with these businesses. So I think that's the big thing that came from it is the outs- outshoot of other creative ideas and great business models.
0: And it sounds like you're involved in some of these businesses. So tell us what you're doing. What you're doing now when you're not in the mountains? What are you up to?
1: So yeah, it's a good question. So uh, a few things. One, I'm, I'm an angel investor, so into five or six different companies and. And I just love that. I'm not a I mostly own minority shares of businesses between 10 and 40, percent and I mostly uh, instead of trying to manage those businesses, I act as an encourager. And uh, it's a very exciting part of my career. The other thing I've done, I've started Vertical IQ, which is a company that provides industry profiles, kind of like First Research, but. They're provided to the banking industry. And so we've done really well with that. I've just recently become active chairman. I was president, and we just hired a, a new president, and I became active chairman. And then I've, I've written a book called The Hockey Stick Principles, which is about all the, a lot of these things we're talking about. And The Hockey Stick Principles will be released in April 2016, and there's a website you know, for dot hockeystickprinciples.com. But that's been Oh, I've loved it because I've interviewed all these really interesting entrepreneurs like Doug Lepa and Bob Young from Red Hat. It's been awesome.
0: That's fantastic. So to reach you, Bobby, uh, hockeyprinciples.com? Hockeystickprinciples.com. Hockeystickprinciples.com. Bobby Martin, thanks for joining us.
1: Of course. Love being here. Thank you, John.